Item one, hit the grocery store. Item two, laundry. Item three, overthrow capitalism. You know, for somebody who taught Latin, your inability to pronounce French, like, hurts. Oh, look at you getting to the end of my stuff. Motherfucker. But seriously, I do think that this bucolic, luxurious, live your weird fucking dreams kind of life is something worth noting. <sighs> because of course he had. I got into an argument essentially uh, with with some folks as to whether or not um, punching Nazis is something you should do. And they're like, no, then you're just as bad as the Nazis. I was like, the Nazis committed genocide. I'm talking about breaking noses. Drink scotch and eat strychnine. All right, you, you can't leave that lying there. Luxury poultry. Yes, yes. Fancy it's, chickens. Yes, fancy chickens. Pet, pet fancy chickens. Pet fancy chickens. history and English teacher up here in Northern California and uh, related to the second part of that description um, <clears throat> this week uh, um, I, I dared my students to do something uh, in our English class we are uh, in order to study characterization we are reading excerpts from boy tales from childhood by Roald Dahl and uh, he waxes rhapsodic in one of these chapters about, about candy, uh, specifically his memories of the candies uh, of his childhood. And um, <clears throat> I got bird walking a little bit, which I'm, I'm prone to. You, you might be surprised to find out. Uh, and And um, black licorice is a recurring thing uh, in the in the candies that that Dahl particularly remembered from his childhood, and he really likes the stuff. And um, I mentioned to my students that, like you know, black licorice is is one of those things that you know people either love or hate. And uh, but I know of a candy that's even more polarizing than black licorice. And I said, it is uh, a form of black. It's related to black licorice. It is salmiaki, the very particular kind of incredibly heavily salted black licorice uh, from the Nordic countries, especially Finland. And I dared my students if they could get a hold of salmiaki, try it, and write me two good detailed paragraphs describing the experience i will give them extra credit which i never do mm -hmm. now what you need to understand is salmiaki is literally the most disgusting thing i have ever tried to eat in my entire life well i mean there's it a couple is, things i want awful i want to bring into that one yeah you're talking about a 
a culture that largely consisted on really shitty fish um or subsisted <laughs> um so much so yeah, yeah. that monty yeah. python made fun of that in their in their musical um yeah two um there are only two rules to candy um and dessert uh rule number one don't be spicy number two don't be salty like that's sh- those shouldn't be the chief flavor profiles of, <laughs> of candy <laughs> and they failed at that. have you tried salted have you tried salted caramel that's actually not bad the chief flavor profiles caramel not the salt no okay all right yeah yeah. it's not caramelized yeah, yeah. salt <laughs> no this is true that's okay good. yeah meaningful meaningful yeah point, yes so <laughs> leave it to no the this stuff to treat oh, yeah <laughs> to treat dessert like you would treat fish that you need to preserve in in your attic mm-hmm. yeah. pretty much yeah um one of the list of crimes uh that finland has committed uh against the world um, the the chief crime Finland has committed against the world, of course, was uh, unleashing uh, my my ex wife and her family upon the world. But that's a whole story for never. Um, I was going to yeah, say siding with I, the Nazis, but I mean, you go off; it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> apparently. Yeah, if you if you met the Queen of Air and Darkness, you'd understand what I'm saying. Um, actually, if you met her mother, you'd understand. Anyway, uh, no, never. I was going to say another time, but never. So anyway, I have, I have dared my students to do this Mm. and, um, I have already, a couple of them have already told me I've, I got, I got the bag. I had, this was, this was yesterday. Um, I got, I got the bag. I haven't tried it yet. I was like, Oh, are you in for an experience? And, and I, I cannot wait to, to read their responses because i i want to know because i described it to them and i had several students who were nodding along like okay i could get behind that that's that's, Mm -hmm. that could be pretty good okay and i'm like you know again it's intensely polarizing like Mm -hmm. either this is going to be catnip for you or you're going to vomit there is no (laughs) in between so (laughs) that's the that's the evil uh i have done as a public educator uh in the past week what have you been up to uh, well, I'm Damien Harmony. I am a high school history teacher up here in Northern California. Um, and and just real quick, there's a fellow on TikTok whose wife films him eating sour candies. Um, and they've also brought their daughter, their 10-year-old daughter into it. Um, and the mm-hmm. facial expressions that the two of them uh, strike are just so, so good. Um, so this kind of, I feel like Okay. There's there's your level of evil, and then there's mine, where I would tell the kids, "All right, I know most of you have a social media. Post the video of yourselves eating it and trying it for the first time, and see if yeah. that goes viral." <laughs> um, because why not? Um, yeah, but, yeah, that's no, that's good. I like I've, that. Yeah, I uh, I okay. So I don't know if I told you before, but I challenged my mm. children when COVID hit. Um, that if they got their typing speed up above 20 words per minute, I would buy them collectively an iPad. And okay, cool. They have both reached it recently. They they both hit uh 20 or higher. Um, my daughter, I think, hit 45. Nice. My son took like 10 seconds to cool. look at what he was gonna type and then started banging away at it, uh, which is very okay. much my son's. Um, and he yeah. still ended up at 21 words a minute. Um, so I think he can go a lot faster, but 
bought them an iPad. Yeah. Uh, also replaced my iPad. Um, and this new iPad, it's, it's lovely. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. everything is just off a little bit. It looks like, it looks like somebody <laughs> came to surveil my house and plant bugs and put everything back one quarter turned the wrong way. Like I can't yeah. put my finger on what's wrong with this thing, but everything's just off a little bit. It would be like when you would go to visit your grandparents and they would watch Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy, whereas in your household, it was Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Like the world is just mm-hmm. a little off, you know? Just so, just slightly, yeah. So yeah. what what generation was your prior iPad? I uh the a six. So, okay. And, and uh, you and you jumped to a nine. Nine. Okay. So, yeah. That's a pretty that's that's a that's a big jump in one yeah. in one yeah. go. So yeah, uh, full size or a mini? Mm, full size. I don't. I don't. I. Okay. I want. I want a screen big enough that I can watch things on while I'm uh, doing dishes. So okay, fair enough. I, I, yeah. I dramatically underuse these things. Uh, to be perfectly honest. Okay. But, yeah, but no, it is fair. It is lovely. It's it's just as good as the last one. It's just a little bit clearer. It's just that everything's mm-hmm. off by a quarter turn. But I'll get used to that. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. So last right. we spoke. Cool. The yes. Nazi party was going in hard against Steiner at the end of his life in 1925, um, which was funny because some Nazis really liked anthroposophy and others really Really? didn't like anthroposophy. And I'd mentioned that Rudolf Hess, of all people, um, was really dug it. Yeah. Huge booster. um, Yeah. Set up Waldorf schools. Yeah. and so I think it's it's best to kind of start start there tonight. Um, I promised schools. Here are schools. Um, Steiner, uh, Rudolf Steiner, wanted to create a school system. Now remember, this is not the same person as his great 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 grand or his great great grand nephew, um, Scott Steiner. Okay, uh, although their right. abilities at math might be I... tied to the same issue. Yeah, um, and and also important for anybody who's who's watched the movie Downfall. Mm-hmm. This is not the same Steiner mentioned in the famous bunker scene there. Who very who, true, you know everybody, you know the yeah. uh, the, the Fuhrer was thinking was going to you know save the day, right, right. So yeah, yeah, that's that's a different one. Um, so uh, Steiner also wanted, also yeah. important, also important. It's not House Steiner, uh, in in BattleTech in the thirty uh, first century. That's true, not and that it's also there. not somebody who brings There's no Battle Max in a big cup, yeah a Steiner. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Okay. All right. So we're clear. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. 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 No, it's, yeah. it's definitely a, a distinction worthy of making. Um, yeah. So Steiner, uh, Rudolf Steiner, yes. um, wanted to create a school system that was holistic and incorporated mm-hmm. the precepts of anthroposophy into its basic purpose, which makes sense given what he's reacting to. What he's reacting to is the industrial model of schooling. Um, the industrial model of schooling, very simple. Rockwell or no Rockefeller <laughs> um, <laughs> Rockefeller uh, and, and not Nelson Rockefeller. Um, but uh, oh, God, what's his name? Um, Rockefeller, the standard oil guy. Um, yeah. What's his first name? Yeah, I know. I know. I know. Yeah. I know the last not, name. I can't not the guy from name. the Republican yeah. Party. Uh, 50 years yeah, later. No. Yeah. Yeah. No. no. This is no. So uh, Standard him. Oil's Rockefeller said uh, it takes about 12 years to train loyal and uh, obedient 
workers who mm-hmm. wants to work for you because it's worker starve. Um, so mm-hmm. get them used to living by a bell, staying in the same spot, the absolute authority of the floor manager, and all of these things. And so they came up with public education, and it was a way to keep you know it's, kids it's, out of rich neighborhoods too. It's really remarkable. Mm-hmm. How long ago late stage capitalism actually like hit? Yeah, it does kind of feel like, um, like it, it, you know what it feels like. Wow. Last remake of Bojest. You know how uh, he'd write back to okay, his father, yeah. and how his father still alive and dying. Um, yeah, that phrase. Yeah, you know, it's still alive yeah. and dying. Yeah, it's the same. Still alive and dying. Yeah. So, but uh, okay. okay. So the the old way was that getting you ready for work, and in fact, the reason for grades existing at all was because they needed a way to determine. Um, how obedient and how good of a worker somebody would be based on the grades. And they were casting about to figure out a good way to do that. And they happened upon the idea of, well, we do this with meat. And so that's why we have the grades that we have. So as much as you want to throw hella shade at Rudolf Steiner, he was trying to do better by our kids. Like, yes and yes low bar but i dare say he did like okay yeah no that that entirely yeah that's that's a fair assessment yeah and the only way this works the bar is in hell yes yes but uh, along with rockefeller um yeah 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 (laughs) probably like yeah well you're catholic um i don't have an afterlife i i I, if there was one i can't he'd be there I, I I will say I would I I would I would certainly argue for putting him there. I can say that. Gotcha. Is there so, like yeah. a, a yearly draft that y'all get together and do? Or, I mean, I have friends who bet on Deadpool's, um, where <laughs> get points uh... by how many years they are away from a hundred when they die. So uh... you know, do you do you, yeah. do you bet on Ric Flair you know, or do you there, bet on Betty a... White? Like, you know, which one mm. will get you more points? know oh, shit but. um yeah no i i have not been invited to join one but i'm okay i would be surprised if if something like that didn't exist somewhere sure yeah so so anyway the, the old wa- the old model was that and it kept poor kids out of rich people's neighborhoods and it kept kids from it basically started to answer the issue of what are we going to do with these immigrant kids who are turning into juvenile delinquents yeah, and it was let's make them better workers and a smarter worker. And that's how it was sold. And that doesn't mean there weren't people involved in public education. I'm looking at Mr. Mann, um, who who genuinely were true believers, but they were already operating within a system that was set up to be abusive. Um, yeah. So so there's that. So, yeah. Steiner um, yeah. was trying to focus on the creativity and imagination and artistic expression of the kids. And I think you could only kind of get this at this time in that area of Germany, because the celebration of the child was starting to grow. I mean, you got the boy Scouts starting in 1911 Mm -hmm. Girl scouts in 1912. You Mm -hmm. eventually will have the Hitler Jungen and the young people's communists. Mm -hmm. Um, and you have all that. Uh, you, you're starting to see this this focus on the child, but I do think this idea of imagination, creativity, you kind of only get that from Austrians. 
um, well, because of all the forests. I mean, I mean, playing outside, all that kind of shit. Like, like him being able to look at that and go, "Okay, you know what? These are the things that kids are doing." I think you only get that in a Volkish culture, a culture that's prone to Volkishness, because you don't get it in France. What in France you got was an effort to demilitarize the classroom because it's after World War One. You, you okay. had a huge yeah. effort to to change the history curriculum so that people don't think about war and nationalism as the first go to because yeah. look what it did to France. Yeah. Um, you have a huge movement toward that. In in England, you have, you know, different kinds of focus. But but in Austria, you have um this this idea of like let's encourage this holistic imagination play play type thing you don't have that okay. in america because it's hyper industrializing yeah. well you don't have it in america because it's right. hyper industrialized and you don't have anything akin to it in the uk because they still have an empire to try to watch out for the one that control. is crumbling away from like they're they're grasping at too yeah they're 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 There's desperation there clutching at yeah. Whereas um, Austria, that empire done collapse. Yeah, it's, so it's, it's like gone. So there's nothing. There's the no forest. motivation. Yeah, yeah. Let's <laughs> never, never would have thought the phrase would have crossed my lips. So yeah, the Austrians were kind of you know the Europe's hippies of the time. <laughs> um, but I mean, if you look at where all the cool music and the same. liberal arts stuff well, came from, the oh, previous yeah. century, it does make yeah, sense. Yeah, I was entirely, entirely correct. The one. Although and, you also and, have Metternich, so I mean, so, mm, mm, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> what I what I kind of at first wanted to quibble with you about, mm -hmm. but then you you kind of kept going and, and clarified uh, mm -hmm. when you talked about the celebration of the child mm -hmm. in the United Kingdom. Mm -hmm. Um, there had been uh, a a kind of um. I don't I don't know if I want to say cult, but there there had been a a romantic a profound romanticization of the institution of childhood, that that phase of life. And that's part of the reason that Victorian Christmas uh was such a big deal, was because th there there came to be this idealized idea of childhood right. for middle class families who because of industrialization there there was this new class of you know call it middle management you know people right, right. who who Urban had yeah who had the wealth and the uh opportunity to shelter their children in a way that people from other social classes and people in earlier time periods had not had the opportunity to do and yeah. I, I kind of, I wanted, I wanted to, I yeah. wanted to kind of bring that up in the conversation, but then you, sure. you continued on and said, you know, talking specifically about, you know, playing outside, being out in the forest and, and right. imagination and all that kind of stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, yeah, that's, that's, you don't have that yes. in England. Also in England, oh, you, what? while you have that, that is true, undeniably. So you also have Dickens, like it's, it sucks to be a kid. In the Victorian times, like most and 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 what's in the popular zeitgeist, yeah. right? Yeah. Um. And and in America, it fucking sucks to be a kid. Like most places are, go away, kid. You bother me. Um. Yeah. Whereas Austria seems to be, and this is a cursory glance at it on my part, but Austria yeah. seems to tack a different wind because 
there's not so much there's still a like well they're they're just fucking kids but at the same time like oh look at the cool shit they're doing in the woods um yeah here's hoping they have fun i don't see that anywhere else and i i wonder also because it, so in england let's just break that down okay. a little bit yeah you do have the middle class victorian christmas right yes and then which then got, got exported to the u.s right but you also have dickensian god awfulness <laughs> um well again part yeah. of what i'm going to point out there is uh you know what was kind of a throwaway line in what i was saying earlier is there's a very important difference in social status well yeah and that's between, what i'm saying between, is you have you this know, yeah. stratification you've got dickensian yeah. all of us are poor and it fucking sucks the yeah. waifs you've got <laughs> the the middle class victorian christmas like oh look yeah. what we can finally do and then you got rich people sending their kids away to school i don't want to be around yeah so only one of them celebrates the kid. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and it's a small group and an important, an important aspect of the, of the upper class of sending their kids off to school. There is the element of, I don't want to be around my kids. Part of that is because their parents hadn't wanted to be around them. And, right, right. and the upper class was much like the empire was, was desperately clutching to, Mm-hmm. control over the colonies by this time uh there is an undercurrent of quiet desperation within you know what had been the landed gentry because mm-hmm. the middle class is is catching up to them and exceeding them in terms of wealth many of their families are broke and they're having to sell off all their estates and so that class and those traditions are the only thing they have to cling to mm-hmm to separate themselves. And so in their own minds, well, I'm sending them off to school to make these connections and to be part of this tradition and, and to, you know, this, this is the favor I'm doing him, you know, is yeah. also, is also a very big part of it. And yeah, I don't know enough about Austrian social, uh, straight straighta. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, the class experience within, within Austria, but one can understand how like, okay, the Austro-Hungarian empire is no more. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there might've been kind of a fin to sickle, like, no, let the kids do whatever the hell they want to do. We have nothing, you know, we have, we have no reason to, to you know, send them off to do these things anymore. Well, and that sending off thing I think is important, especially if you're going to compare it to England. England had a history of exporting its children, whether they were huh? children or growing up. In fact, a yeah. colleague of mine just found out, like he found his birth family. Um, and he he got very into his uh genealogy and such. Okay. And he uh he said that there was a special kind of category of kids that they literally just put them on a boat to Canada mm-hmm. in the early 1900s, like just yeah. straight up. And, and it was like a type of kid. Like it was a, a class. It's almost like, um, you know, we, we have our, our hot rodders, you know, <laughs> in the fifties, they had Canadian boat kids. I don't remember the exact name, but yeah. you have that. Right. So, and, and England relied on second sons and beyond mm-hmm. because that's how they kept their empire. Austria, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, was in slow decline for so long that mm, it was more mm-hmm. about defense and more about restoring itself or maintaining itself. Right. And so everybody's bringing everybody inward. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think that that 
absolutely might play into. And again, this this is something that's fairly uninterrogated by me, honestly. I'm I am assuming based on several things. So it intuitively yeah. sounds really good. Um my research didn't take me here and now I kind of wish it had. Uh yeah, well, but, yeah. but this makes some sense. Like that's why you have kids playing in the forest, but they're still near home. You know, you've got yeah. small towns. And again, you look at the topography as compared to an island where everything's jammed in and you have these small yeah. towns. It, it, it's fairly urbanized though. You know, you've got factory towns, you got this, you yeah. got that. Whereas it, Austria, you don't have that as much. It's still fairly peasant-y. And at least it it um romanticizes the peasant e yeah so yeah and and of course by this time in england um most of the forests had been cut down either right. for firewood <laughs> or to build the the english navy yeah uh, in and centuries railways. previous yeah. yeah and everything else all the engineering right. that, that had been done yeah um and so there there is a lot less access to that you know primeval setting exactly. Exactly. All of you know the the forests in England by this time are very carefully manicured, and managed by the noble, you know, right. gentry family. Privatized, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you know, he wants creativity, he wants imagination, artistic expression. Which, when you look back at his meditative goals, you remember, um, all of that makes a lot of sense. You know, that whole yeah. like in in you know uh, reflecting on it and then like you know immersing yourself, becoming one with it, and being separate from it, and and on. So the owner of the Waldorf Astoria Cigarette Company was really high on anthroposophy, and he had money, and he bankrolled Steiner's first school, hence the name Waldorf School. Um, oh. This was in 1919, which, hell of a time to start a school. Uh, but um, I'm just thinking in terms of the flu. Uh, yeah. But So rather than educating children for factory work, the school would educate the children whose parents were factory workers. So, okay. Already it's better than the U S system, which only two years prior finally had 48 States on board with compulsory publicly funded education. Thank you, Mississippi. <laughs> so in their mm. own, in their own words, uh, the Waldorf school philosophy posits that quote, Music, dance, and theater, writing, literature, legends, and myths are not simply subjects to be read about and tested. They're experienced. Through these experiences, Waldorf students cultivate their intellectual, emotional, physical, and spiritual capacities to be individuals certain of their paths and to be of service to the world. Okay. Sounds great. I mean, honestly, yeah, that if, does if, really actually sound if a very parochial good. school advertised this, I bet you'd jump for it. Yeah. Like, okay, cool. You know? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Further, um, quote, teachers in Waldorf schools are dedicated to generating an inner enthusiasm for learning within each or within every child. This eliminates the need for competitive testing, academic placement, and rewards to motivate learning and allows motivation to arise from within. It helps engender the capacity for joyful, lifelong learning. This is all their words. Okay, this is what they're advertising. Mm -hmm. This is what they're putting out there. This is their mission statement, and I have no reason to doubt that that's what they truly want to do. Oh yeah, no, I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't doubt any of this being sincere, right? Certainly, yeah. Um, and frankly, it's way better than what we offer in our no child left behind, scarred lack of infrastructure. Deliver the competency models that pressure teachers to pass kids who can't fucking read or write because we've commodified it so hard. That sending a kid to school uh, or out of school 
without a diploma is an economic death sentence. So, I mean, if I'm looking at those two models, I know which one I would want to send my kid to. Yeah, definitely. Now, the basics of how the schools are organized in the broadest possible strokes is that there are three epochs, and here's where you lose me. Um, But (laughs) there, uh, and and again, it's one of those, oh, intuitively, I guess that kind of makes sense, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. But... As soon as you as soon as you start like a taxonomy, I start to get a little twitchy. So yeah. according according to the Waldorf model, there are three epochs of educational development for a child, each one lasting roughly seven years, according to Steiner. Early childhood, elementary, and secondary. Now that makes some sense. TK, you know, yeah. you, you know, like like we all know that like K through two is something. And then third grade is kind of a level jump. It's a huge know? level jump. Right. So I yeah. get third through six, right. And then yeah. seven through 12, like it's just, yeah. you're grinding and, and polishing. Right. So yeah. I get that. So, so far so good. The, the schools thus should at each epoch awaken the quote, physical, behavioral, emotional, cognitive, social, and spiritual capabilities and aspects of every child. These are uh, the the model that they use is very experiential based, lots of inclusive play, lots of circle time, lots of gardening, rhythm, recess, songs, games, cooking, that kind of thing. Again, this all sounds good. This sounds like, you know, the the ideal kibbutz on some levels. Yeah. You know, uh, lots of focus on festivals that are based on seasonal changes in the world around the kids that they experience. Okay, Okay. cool. You know. I I have oft bemoaned the lack of ceremony in our kids' lives. Um, so this kind of tickles me where I itch. Um, all of the very back to the rusticus kind of vibe overall is 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 there. Um, and there's something to be said in the post-war era for a return mm-hmm. to a simpler, more peaceful, and simple vibe. Uh, I I I feel like Remark would have mm-hmm. liked that. I mean, that was oh, well- a, a motif through most of all quiet was yeah the stillness of nature well and i mean across the board mm-hmm. uh, culturally all over europe um you have i mean you have uh an- anthro anthroposophy mm-hmm. um like itself as a as a mysticism mm-hmm. becoming popular uh because the experience of the war yeah uh had disillusioned so many people with yeah. the societal model that had led to world war one like you yeah know, and schools the, were a big locus of that too they absolutely preached nat- nationalism oh um, yeah especially in the 19th century yeah and uh you know as as we've pointed out as you've pointed out mostly uh many times when you have the all of the modernists uh, mm-hmm. or futurists, I should say, um, getting themselves killed off. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, 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 uh, uh, opposite number, mm-hmm. you know, the, the mystics and the, and the Gnostics and, you know, everybody who's like, no, this, this industrialization shit is not healthy for us. Right. They're now, they're the voices that are, that are left. Yeah. You know, yeah. um, and- I couldn't find so. the title, but I remember that in 1905, there was a book written about how electricity 
going through the wires, you know, because if you stand under like uh, power lines, you hear a buzz, right? Yeah. They talked about this book put forth the idea that electricity and I don't think it was microwaves. I think it was like radio waves. Yes, it was radio waves and electricity. Both were going to disrupt the human nervous system. Um. That and and that was a, not an unpopular book. I couldn't find the title of it. I think I have okay. it in notes somewhere uh, at a different site. But but yeah, yeah, there's there that goes back to what you're saying is like you know we we got to get back to the simpler thing because we are just cooking ourselves. Yeah, you know, and yeah, in the 19th century, you do see the Romantic nationalists after the Congress of Vienna and the counter revolutionaries after 1848. Um, and you also, again, you have this this kind of collision uh, with the Volkish culture that the Brothers Grimm and others in Central Europe, especially in the area that would become Germany and by proxy Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a lot of cultural pressure in the 19th century to build Central Europe out of blood and iron, which influenced every part of public life in the late 1800s. There were lots of myths and folktales about a king under a mountain. A sleeping oh, yeah. hero, that sort of stuff. There's a lot of ties to nature, just culturally. Oh yeah, uh, OG or the Dane in yeah more northern mm-hmm. uh, stretches of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, I forgot the first name, but I remember there's somebody the Dane. That's who it yeah. was. Yeah, yeah, OG or yeah, uh, who uh, initially, uh, I know at some point he had been tied to Charlemagne and mm-hmm. the twelve peers. Yeah, yeah, and. Yeah, and and in Britain you had the same thing with you know the legend of King the romantic the, I was gonna the, say it's very surge of of yeah. Arthurian legend. Yep. Uh, you know, and and him sleeping somewhere in in Avalon, you know, right. when he come back. Yeah, when, it's the once and Britain, future king. It's yeah, that part, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it's you know, America didn't have that because we were such a new and push westward kind of culture. Yeah, um, that it was a very different it, it, America was much more about like, oh, fuck it. I'm leaving. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just going to keep going west. Yeah. Uh, who was it? it? It was. uh Are we talking Frederick Jackson Turner? No, no, oh. it wasn't. Was it Davy Crockett or was it Daniel Boone? Daniel who... Boone. Y'all can go. So... to. <laughs> I'm going to Texas. Y'all can go to hell. Well, Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, no, that was Davy Crockett. That was that Davy was Crockett. Crockett yeah. But I think Daniel Boone was the one who, uh, upon uh, stepping out the front door of his cabin one day, saw somebody else's uh, smoke coming up out of a chimney in the oh, distance and right. said, All right, no, I, that's it. I got to pick up and move on. <laughs> it's right. Like, you can't even, it's on literally on the other side of a ridgeline, fucker. <laughs> like, come on. Right. Like, yeah. the fetishization of, of, you know, independence and self-sufficiency, like, no. Also, I I would just point out, autism has many forms. Okay. You know? All right. You know what? I Maybe that's ableist of me. I hadn't taken that into account. Well, no, I'm just just thinking, like, because, I mean, (laughs) it's impossible to, first off, I'm not a diagnostician. Secondly, it's impossible to diagnose people in history. That being said, yeah. When you read about somebody and you're like, oh, yeah, you know, like he <laughs> like, felt too crowded because he saw smoke that far in the distance. That sounds like fixation to me. Like I can. OK, I can understand that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's not yeah, ableistic I, of you. It's yeah. just like, you know, because, again, it's not responsible to diagnose him as having autism. 
that being said, that's a real clear marker. <laughs> By the way, Daniel, we're gonna Boone, we're gonna tick that box on the floor. Exactly, we're gonna like exactly. yeah. Um, you know the the hundred questions that we <laughs> as teachers get to answer about students is like one of them is <sighs> if they see smoke on the ridge line, do they want to move? <laughs> You're like yes. So, yeah, as a matter of fact, odd, but, odd that that comes up so specifically on this right. one. <laughs> right. Um, did you know, by the way, that Daniel Boone is the reason that uh, President Andrew Jackson didn't kill a man? No. Yeah. So, I mean, talk about birdwalking. I mean, but I, I literally yeah. <laughs> haven't left the page that I started with. Um, but <laughs> Andrew Jackson, the, the first presidential assassination attempt was against Andrew Jackson. And the guy came out and fired two pistols at Andrew Jackson, point blank range, both misfired. Um, they later tested those guns and found them working just fine. So it's clear that the bullets were afraid to go into Andrew Jackson. Um, but Andrew Jackson was okay. walking with a hickory cane, which basically right. means he was walking with a shillelagh. Um, yeah, he proceeded to say. start beating the man to death with his walking cane. Until Daniel Boone pulled him off. So just for perspective, Bill Clinton is walking down the street. Somebody is and, and he's there with, um, oh, God, who would be somebody in the 90s? Uh, uh, Michael Jordan. He's there with Michael there Jordan walking down the street. Yeah. And somebody tries to kill him. And Michael Jordan's the reason that Bill Clinton didn't strangle a man to death. Like, imagine reading yeah. that headline in 1995. Like yeah. Michael Jordan saves Bill Clinton's uh, would be assassin from the wrath of Bill Clinton. Like, yeah, just like, yeah. That's weird. And yeah, the, 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 the only part of that story mm-hmm. that, that I don't boggle at mm-hmm. is, is the understanding that Andrew Jackson was the first president. Anybody tried to assassinate. Right. Well, like if there was, if there was going to be a first one, yeah, Andy, Andy is right up there. Like that said, would you try to assassinate a man who had won 52 duels when if you lose a duel, you're probably dead? (laughs) Like what I know dueling culture had a lot of subtlety there, but he made Um, them blood. Yeah. What what I'll, what I'll say is um, if I had decided to do it, Mm -hmm. um, I wouldn't have tried to do it with handguns at close enough range that he could get me with a stick. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like the rifled musket existed at that point. True. Very true. <laughs> just going to, you know, yeah. I mean, Daniel Boone say, had like, old Betsy. Know. So, yes. So, you know, yeah. So, anyway, <sighs> so back anyway. to central European education. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. We're we getting far. off the subject yeah. a little bit, a little yeah. bit. So you take this revulsion at nationalism, right? And you combine it right, with right. the focus, the the Volkish focus uh, of that nationalism in Germany, right? So you're revolted by it, but it's yeah. also tied to Volkism, as well as the essential soul focus nationalism of anthroposophy, right? Because nations have a soul. Right. And so it's it, these are subtle turns and facets of what's going on. And then you make them all react to the mechanized horrors that World War One brought about, and you get a pretty clear line to understanding that the Waldorf approach to education was a viable approach for people at that time. 
Um, and with these things come the humorism that preceded it because there were plenty of regressive, which I don't, I don't actually mean disparagingly per se. I just mean that there were plenty of uh, like that. Th when I say regressive, what I mean is that there, it represented a return to things that had been let go of centuries ago because the modern era was so fucking awful. So when I speak of that regression, I'm not talking about like a decay or a decline to dumber times. I just mean people going back to the simpler time, the the country mouse, not the town mouse, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. Yeah. 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 Right, so okay. you there are plenty of regressive ideas that began to warrant a second look because look what modernism and futurism had brought us. Look at the destruction that came about as a result of the mechanization and the industrialism and all of the things that had taken hold for the last hundred years and then apply it to children and, and look at this idea of soul focus, which was big because you have the forgotten generation or not the forgotten generation, the, the lost generation. And because you have all of this emphasis on, um, you know, you have all of this emphasis on soul and on nature and on returning to our spirits, you know, and the spiritualism. So, yeah, you start to see like how that's working. Now, the idea of a child's temperament guiding a teacher to best educating that child in that context starts to make sense. Right. Um, I mean, how many times do we see that stupid quote? Um, where if if you know a child's not learning, then it's not a problem of the child; it's a problem of the teacher, right? Right. Yeah. There's something to that, but also like there's genuinely something wrong with the system that creates that kind of a dichotomy. So yeah, why not use the child's temperament to see what they're into? Um, that that starts to make a lot of sense. Um, European schools had spent generations beating obedience into children, and they got 10 million of them killed in anonymous, inevitable grinding combat that did nothing but that for four years. Afterward, yeah. it's definitely worth an effort to try the opposite. And while other countries and systems were recreating their education system, like I said, the French history teachers specifically moving very hard to change their textbooks that their students would read in an effort to specifically prevent another such war. The Waldorf model embraced an old intuitive model that focused on growing individuals, the four temperaments. Now, so yeah, go ahead. Now, now we're we're getting back to humorism. Yes, and 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 kind kind of elementalism. Yes, at the same time. All three of those things cannot be separated from each other fully. Like, yeah, they're, they're all facets of the same belief of this archetypical quadrant. Right now. So, yeah, it, it strikes me that, um, you know, Steiner, Steiner had some, some laudable ideas and, and certainly mm -hmm. his goals were, were laudable. And, I almost feel like I kind of I kind of have a bone to pick with him about like at this point this is where you you decide that we're going to kind of half ass it and instead of like you know uh coming up with a way to actually target the individual child mm -hmm. we're going to say okay well you know we got to we got to we got to simplify this now mm -hmm. and we're going to we're going to you know go to you know 
every every kid fits in an archetype and it's like but that is a really but, good point like, like you know, instead of like we're going to unlock each child individually you're right there is a layer of now we're going to generalize it out to the world yeah which, in that, many ways you're just zooming out further kind of yeah. yeah that's a good point um, well, that's that's what he encouraged. Now, Helmut yeah. Eller, okay. uh, who has done extensive writing on the topic, was born about 15 years after Waldorf started to take off. Um, so he okay. wasn't at the ground floor for these things, but he does a pretty good job of codifying what they were trying to do in the late 19-teens and the early 1920s in these schools. Uh, the efforts of Eller's writings and by many Waldorf practitioners is to help to find the balance, help children find the balance within themselves. Again, find the balance within yourself. There's humorism, right? There's temperamentalism to encourage the various aspects of who they are, not simply drill down on the one personality trait that they exhibit the most and just play to that. Okay, so again, that... having them in balance, though, it, this does come back to yeah. Galen, right? This does come back to that same thing. So while yeah. I like this in general, um, I like the idea that a kid could be really good at automotive and at theater. I like that. I like yeah. it a lot. Yeah. He, it's still coming back to this this ancient thing which again Yeah, it is pseudoscience. Um which, you know, I'm I'm never going to be f a huge fan of pseudoscience, but I get why they got there because letting go of all of our humanity is what led to 10 million people dying. So, I get it. I get it. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I understand. I understand the motivation. Yeah. And and as you've said about other things before, it's like I can see every single link in the chain of thought. Right. I can I can totally understand. And and in hindsight, I can look at the chain of thought and go, and that's the one that was miscast. And see, I can't like even... that's that's the link that that's going to that's going to snap. I can say that I don't. I don't like where the chain led, but I can't tell you the oh, one okay. that was deeply flawed to me. Like, okay. Because again, yeah, like you said, I see every, every yeah. step that they made, every one of them looks reasonable along that logic. But I mean, it's, it's sophistry yeah. at the end of the day. I think it's sophistry or, <laughs> you know, or, or solipsism. I, I always <clears throat> interchange those two. It's kind of both. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the one it, where you are begging the question, <laughs> like it's yeah. that um, it, solipsism. Yeah, solipsism. There you go. Um, yeah. Now, the the idea though is that like if you looked at the old way of education, we're going to drill down on on we're just going to like insert a personality into you so that you can be a good little bug, right? We will imprint upon you the personality that we need. Exactly. Although actually, I'm I'm using I'm using the wrong accent because I I really ought to sound like like an Northeastern Yankee. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. We need right. you to what make we're gonna cars. do here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> what we're gonna do here. That's right. Can't get there. We're gonna train yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. We're gonna that, we're gonna like, give you the best Skinnerian. Yeah. yeah, we're gonna give you the best Skinnerian conditioning anybody's ever gotten anywhere. <laughs> Here's a young man who has put together 4,000 widgets in the last four hours. When asked why his hands won't stop shaking, he said simply that he's happy to eat. Keep it going, young man. <laughs> but, okay. So, this idea was slow the fuck down, 
don't just drill into the one thing. So, I mean, you know, I love history, right? Don't just teach Damien right. history. Don't do that, right? Teach him other stuff. So if a kid is choleric, work with that, but then also draw out the phlegmatic aspects of her personality, along with encouraging the sanguine and the melancholic. Each one is a valuable right. part of that child and thus must be nurtured as fully as possible. And none of the temperaments are bad for educating, and the educators must adjust to allow for them. Now, that sounds great if you have a class size of eight. Yeah. So. Yeah. It, well, it's, it's really well, hard. Let's for, talk about classroom models right. in Austria well, in the 1920s, shall we? Right. Well, well, how and, many, and how many kids is, are we dealing with here? Is, is that we will look with bitter askance at any of these things because we have 35 to ones. Like it's, it's, yes, it's not a fair yeah. thing for us to be bitter all, along those lines when discussing this. So it's a, a, a way of me checking myself there. Cause I'm like, Oh, this yeah, is that true. Would be nice. it, it is not, it, yeah. it is presentist of us. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think it's unreasonable though. <laughs> no, again, I <laughs> like, see, I see like, the logic you know, and where we got. There. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. So, um, like I said, each one's a valuable part to the child. You got to nurture yeah. it. Uh, yeah. None of the temperaments are bad. Um, teachers need to, uh, to adjust to them and be able to adjust to them and allow for them. And at the same time, just as the earth has its seasons, so too does education. Certain colors at certain times and certain days will help the child to unlock and sort those aspects within themselves. And of course, lots of rhythm, lots of gardening, lots of fast festivals and lots of handiwork. Now, again, there's some really good stuff braided in there. I know you're shaking your head, but you and I both know that October sucks and March sucks. And these are seasonal things. <laughs> it's getting yeah, darker. Yeah you're, not, yeah, you're not wrong. Right? And you teach where well, puberty yeah. hits. I teach where puberty is already hit. You teach where puberty oh, yeah. hits. So you know that oh. May also sucks. Oh, 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 <laughs> May yeah, May. I've I've talked about. Um, I, I have I have gotten very poetic about a a class uh, a colleague of mine who suggested a number of years ago in in conversation that you know what uh, we all ought to just get a week off in October, mm -hmm. like like just just give us a break in October because everybody's pissed off. Mm -hmm. We're in the doldrums, like you know. Mm -hmm. And and what I and and I said, okay, so how how do we schedule that out? He goes, oh well, you know, we just extend the extend the year, like g g take away a week in 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 June, but give us a week off in October. Mm -hmm. And I looked him right in the face, and I said, no, <laughs> no, you might be brave enough. You you might have the fortitude to face a June maddened adolescent, but exactly. I do not. Right. Like no. Yeah. Like so much no. There's a reason there's a phrase called crazy as a June bug. Like <laughs> Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and we So have... no, the seasonal stuff. Yeah. The seasonal stuff isn't the part that had me shaking my head like at all. Because yeah. anecdotally, I mean it's the same thing as like if you talk to ER doctors or cops about the full moon, like they're gonna be like, no, it's a thing. Yeah. I'm gonna quibble um, with that. But I, I know, I know, yeah. but, <laughs> but, but you, yes. you, you get the point. You get the I point do. I'm trying to I make. I do. Yeah. Um, and and what I was shaking my head at was like the mystical deep psychology thing associated with like certain colors in the room at certain times. Right. I'm like, 
All right, now we're getting woo woo. We are, here. and and you know, so I don't remember if it's been proven or not, but I know it's certainly been attempted mm. by college football okay. teams to change the color of the locker room of the visiting team. Oh yeah, no, I've heard about I've heard about right. this stuff. So yeah, I don't know if it's been proven and, to work or not, but and and uh, you know. Uh, interior designers and psychologists mm-hmm. working for corporate interests that like when you're in, when you're in a particular store or in a fast food restaurant, I was going to say red, like the and, color, red and yellow. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the color of the environment affecting, like making you hungry or making you in a hurry to get up and eat and get right. out, you know, there you go. Like, so there, there is something to that. And yet, I mean, it's 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 yeah. not practical for me to, you know, back then, though, the, the idea was that the, the teacher like absolutely was sacrificing themselves for the kids, et cetera, et cetera. So, oh, yeah, you would be yeah. expected to put in a shit ton of free labor because it's for the kids. Um, yeah. You know, as opposed to now. But yeah, so I could see going like, OK, it's getting to be October. I need brighter colors in here to combat the fact that it's darker when they get here. I get it. That makes sense. See from a, from a, from a lighting, like, Mm -hmm. okay, no, I need, I need the room to be brighter. Mm -hmm. Totally makes sense. Yeah. I know that's not the extent of it though. No, no, no. For, for adherence of no times of day have different colors and lessons have different colors. And yeah, Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Now, again, we are mammals. We are driven by some seasonal stuff. Yes. You know, and seasons absolutely change colors of things. This is true. There's that. Uh, And I would say that the the focus on rhythm, gardening, festivals, handiwork, all Mm. of those things absolutely fit with what we've always said is that these kids should be on a farm. Right. Yeah. These are these are entirely laudable. And I agree with all of those points in in theory. It's 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 how are we going to put how are we going to do that in practice? Well, again, if you You had low class sizes enough, I think you you could create you could create a community like you could almost create a boarding school community wherein you do something like that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. So, for instance, according to Steiner, sanguine children are most inspired by their love of parents or teachers. Okay. Right. Uh, He said, quote, everything must be done to awaken love in such a child. Love is the magic word. Eller tacked on that you needed to, quote, increase their attention spans by looking closely at an object of interest together, a picture, for example, and pointing out the details they might have missed. And that such a child was, quote, light and cheerful, spontaneous and confident. She openly approaches new situations she makes new friends easily she is quick to discover something about her teacher something new about her teacher suddenly remembers all the things she wanted to tell him bubbles over with the news then runs away and hands out her birthday invitations the sanguine child loves the world and other people and would like to embrace everyone okay okay yeah sounds uh, honestly it sounds a little horoscopy to me but more than a little, but we've yeah. all we've all met that cinnamon roll. We kid. absolutely have. We so, absolutely have. like, yeah, and we've all had that kid that we've struggled to reach, and then we do look at something closely with them and point out details that only they noticed, and mm-hmm. now we've got a connection. So, 
Yeah. Now, Steiner also advised adults to stay calm and collected in the face of a choleric child's anger. This makes sense. This is how you diffuse things, right? I have a coworker who works in the front office of our discipline office, and he's masterful at diffusing a kid by not matching his energy. Oh, yeah. 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 People, people who have that gift, like I'm, I, I am in awe of them. Right. Um, quote with the choleric child, try to become inwardly apathetic to watch coolly when he has a temper tantrum. This is what Eller said, quote, a choleric child. Uh, no. So that's Steiner. Eller says a choleric child leads the way, constantly strives forward and energetically pursues her goal. Once it is achieved, she immediately seeks a new one. Determination and drive go hand in hand. We can sense something forceful, energetic, quick-witted, vigorous, and decisive. Sheer willpower. Firm goals are set and forcefully pursued. You get the impression whatever she plans will be carried out tenaciously and thoroughly. Okay. Yeah. I mean, honestly, were we to discuss a certain TERF's writings, I would say that this is the one that, that is green and silver. Whereas the previous which is one... which is remarkable, uh huh, because the element associated with that particular group within that turf's writing is usually elementally tied to water. No, water is is the the one with the bird. Air is the one with the bird. Oh, you're right. Yeah, bird goes in the air. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, you're right. Yeah. Um. Well, you know, things evolve. Uh. People yeah. Yeah. Don't well. Read yeah. Very carefully. Um. Yeah. Come up with cool shit too. Mm-hmm. Um. So. Uh. Now, melancholic children can be too inwardly focused, especially on their own suffering, and Steiner recommends helping them focus on the needs of others. He said, "Quote: The melancholic child is capable of suffering of moroseness. Uh, these qualities exist in him, and we cannot flog them out, but we can divert them." Above all, we must show the melancholic child how people can suffer. Eller thought of the melancholic child as, quote, he feels much more at home in his inner world, in his thoughts, emotions, and even dreams. He loves inner and outer peace and quiet and behaves sensitively and tactfully. He doesn't like bothering other people, which is why he usually keeps to himself. He is a master of self-control and self-criticism. He therefore observes others closely and is capable of suffering deeply with them. His great assets are his ability to think things through seriously and to sympathize and empathize with others. Okay. Cool, right? Yeah. Where Steiner thought sanguine children would be most influential by their love of adult, he also thought phlegmatic children would do best when they connected with other children. Quote, Mm. so saying of the phlegmatic, quote, he must have playmates with the most varied interests. Steiner saw this as a way to help them become more active and engage with the world around them. Parents then should give phlegmatic children plenty of opportunities to make friends and have play dates. Eller said of the phlegmatic child, quote, he experiences things sentimentally and whenever possible, comfortably and cozily as well, because he encounters the world around him with a feeling of well-being at his own leisurely, unhurried pace. Nothing can get him worked up. He particularly relishes everything that has to do with the regularity and rhythm, which is why he can spend a lot of time doing things he enjoys. He, his great assets are patience, endurance, calmness, and peacefulness. He would never insult anyone. He enjoys situations that make him feel good and has no desire to change them. I mean, 
again, each of these sounds like a house at a a certain uh, a certain school. Sign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, <clears throat> and you know, huh. cool. Again, okay. that in many ways just points out the archetypical nature of this, but it also points out the horoscope nature of this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Now, I'm not here to judge the particular merits of the system, though, given my lack of trust of such unifying theories that draw on race science, the emphasis on the soul <laughs> and woo, you could probably find out what I think well enough. Yeah. However, I do think that it is interesting that with all of these specific foci on children's temperaments and with Waldorf education remaining relatively flat from 1919 through the 1970s, like there were not that many schools worldwide from 19 through the 70s. Really? Yeah. They just, it stayed pretty flat. Like I found huh. a chart um, and I want to say, well, actually I've got the numbers right here. Um, so I, I, I want to say, cause I wrote it down. Uh, so the sudden and constant rise of such schools starting in the early 1980s, as well as the revisitation of the influence of astrology and temperament explanations in the same era, it would make sense that a quartet would come onto the scene in comic books that people would latch onto by the late 1980s. Okay. World worldwide, Waldorf schools hovered around the 50s from 1919 through the 1970s. Worldwide, there were about 50 or so Waldorf schools. No shit. Yeah, it always stayed right around in the 50s. Um, as late as 1967, there were only nine school Waldorf schools in all of the United States. Yeah. Bullshit. No, there were only nine. Really? Yeah, but. By the 1980s, that number surpassed 200. And by 1990, it was nearly 600. Okay. That's so, a hockey stick. Like, that's, yeah, like that's, that's, that's quite the curve. So at that time period, mm-hmm. in the 80s, mm-hmm. people having kids yeah. and getting their kids to an age where they were going to be sending them to schools. Mm-hmm the boomers true do you think mm-hmm. there is a correlation between um the counterculture outlook of the boomers back when they were busy rebelling against their you know silent parents and not wanting to go to vietnam and getting to be old enough to have their own children and saying, well, you know, I mean, I, I don't, I don't want my kid to be, you know, a drone. Right. And, and they're now being a very large, um, what's the word I'm looking for demographic mm-hmm. that would be supportive of this model. That's giving them a lot more credit than I'm, that I'm willing, willing to, to give. Willing to, yeah. Okay. But you're on the right track just for <clears throat> the wrong reasons. Okay. So in the 1970s, there was absolutely a movement in America toward cultish behavior. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so uh, you caught me, you caught me drinking on that. <laughs> so, okay. Like I said, you're I, on the right track, but right, you were, you were following the wrong, wrong signs. Reasons. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so, so you're saying it was the Moonies. The it, Moonies were responsible. 
the movies in Hare Krishna, right? Yeah, yeah, kind of. Yeah, okay, I mean, you right. know, with with less CIA <laughs> than the Moonies, though. Um, but, or or less uh, Japanese prime minister murders than the Moonies. Um, so, oh my God! Yeah, um, I had to I had to mute my mic because the the <laughs> laughter came out uh and in, 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 along with along with a lot of coughing. But yeah. oh my God! Yeah, okay. Yeah. So Jesus. there's a movement toward cultish behavior starting in the late late sixties, early seventies, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, as well as a greater emphasis on the folkish nature uh that we see in Anthroposophy and Waldorf prior to that. There's suddenly uh, the study of folklore. And in some of this we have Joseph Campbell to thank. <clears throat> um and some okay. and we, we also have Tolkien's uh the revival of of Tolkien's books, you know, Frodo okay. Lives, that kind of stuff. That's, yeah. So you have acid to thank for this. <laughs> um, in in fact, if you look at the way that churches were interacting with despondent hippies and the marginalized in the late sixties and seventies, it's very much of a return to the <clears throat> land volkish effort. Oh, Jesus, well, there's, there's, Jesus was the ultimate hippie. That kind of stuff. Oh yeah, what 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 that twigged uh, mm-hmm. was there's a huge overlap uh, between the hippie movement and uh evangelicalism in a yes. really weird way. Yes. That like, you know, because uh, they're both, they're both touching on a wound that people don't know how to heal from. Yes. They're both. Yeah. They're both like offering a salve to a, a psychological separation and abandonment almost. Um, yeah. From society. So, yeah. So this 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 rise in cultish behavior and this wave of uh, what like in in Japan, there's a whole lot of stuff that's that that gets referred to as like new religions. That's that's the same same kind mm-hmm. of mysticism, you know, cult vibe kind of thing. Right. In in the U.S., we we see this in the '70s, and this is mm-hmm. when a huge wave of the boomers are hitting are hitting young adulthood. Yep. Is this the, like the, the outgrowth of the countercultural, you know, abandonment of traditional spirituality. And like, I'm looking for whatever else I can find. Is this like, my parents don't get me. And these people who, you know, this is i think i think that this is um and i'm i'm fairly critical of the boomers um but i do think that this is the logical consequence okay to raising a group of people to think that they were special Um, but never talking to them (laughs) i think you have both of those things happening to boomers um, okay. Um, and, yeah. Yeah. That. That. And so they have to kind of create their own. It really. It's, yeah, it really is. Like, <laughs> like holy I, shit. I get wow. why the boomers act the way they do now. I really yeah. do understand it. I don't like yeah. it. Uh, well, they're still yeah. responsible for it, yeah. but I get it. Um, and you okay. keep in mind, it's you know, in the 1970s, there's so much more emphasis on on purity gardening, right? Organic focused gardening. No. God, homespun yeah. cloth, 
homemade foods, making your own. Everybody had those fucking Afghans on the back of their couch, you know? Yeah, macrame um, as yeah, a hobby. Yeah. More communes, all that kind of stuff like this. Yeah. So there's also a tremendous effort by specifically religious groups, including the ones who are dabbling in Volkish cultism, uh, to resegregate the schools that the federal government was insisting desegregate. And this is where we get the uh, intersection between of, yeah. of, of like like everything of shitty. sad boomers like, and shitty boomers like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 uh neo-confederates and uh -huh. lost cause apologists and yeah. all of those horrible fucking people yeah well and you can hide one sense of purity inside of another i'm not racist i just want my um, kid to go to a school where he can garden you know that kind of like yeah it starts to get Fuck. weird yeah um if we only look at the amount of private school enrollments we can actually see a bump from 1979 when the number of kids enrolled mm. in private school had been hovering around 7.5 million compared to the 50.3 million in public schools okay and, and just fast forward by four years now i pick four mm. years because there's a certain presidency that's starting mm. um it resettled at about 8.5 million compared to the 48.9 million in public schools. Okay. So to put it another way, from 1970 through the mid-1980s, public schools saw a decline of roughly 14% nationwide. Okay. I'm not saying that it's due all to having to desegregate, but when you look at when folks start to look into alternative schooling, the two things tend to line up across the board politically. Yeah. So oh, yeah, you have riots in Boston. <laughs> yep. You have uh and 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 remember Brown versus Board was 1954. Oh yeah. Well, but it said know, because... with all due haste, which meant that people could slow walk it. So in the 70s, yeah. you still had people de desegregating. Oh yeah. Well, and I mean, I remember when when I was in elementary school. Mm -hmm. Um I, I remember hearing about the level of controversy and the screaming and shouting and mm -hmm. just anger, um, <laughs> you know, from from suburban white people mm -hmm. about, you know, busing programs. I, I right. vaguely recall um, my father venting about the idea. Mm hmm. You know, I mean, there was there was no chance that like I I was not going to be sent anywhere. Um, but you know, just just the the idea of it uh, was enough that my father, who is not an overt racist of any kind, but is the kind of latent racist that you get by growing up in the fifties in South Florida. You know, um, he he was he he definitely was was not thrilled with the idea. I won't I won't go so far as to say he was heated, but it was really clear that like he he considered this like un unfair somehow. Mm -hmm. You know, and 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 it, I would know. point out it is unfair to I have a neighborhood school a mile away, and you're going to put my kid on a bus for an hour each way. Yeah. That's bullshit. Oh yeah. Yeah, but that's not the unfairness my father was was upset right. about. 
you know. But I would also say that yes, that is <laughs> that part's unfair and and deserving of of like I understand people's anger at it. However, let's yeah. look at what that's looking to fix. It's not like that exists in a vacuum. It's not like yeah. a school board yeah. woke up one day and they were like, you know what, we need to do. Like, yeah, there are reasons that that became the solution. Yeah. Well, so so here here in our country, we we have I I would say two two main problems mm -hmm. with with the with the model and the mechanism of public education. The first one is we're still operating under the industrial model. Mm -hmm. That's the first one. <laughs> yeah. that's like right I would off the bat, that's a pretty like big problem. Number one, that's that that is number one for a reason. Number two, we have decided that uh, across the board, the way to determine funding for schools is through property taxes, right? Around, like, and and there is. Um, I, I am, I am a hundred percent on board with, you know, within, you know, individual districts having a lot of, a lot of say, you know, in local, local control of schools. I am, I am on board for, mm -hmm. however, the way we have chosen to fund our schools right. is desperately classist. Well, and I would point out that the, the, the year ranges that I gave you were one year after Prop 13 came out. Mm -hmm. The Howard yeah. Jarvis uh, yeah. proposition. So, yes. So, well, more I mean, on it's... that later. Uh, oh, okay. Right now, we need to go back to 1917. Okay. All right. Catherine Cook Briggs, a graduate of Oberlin College and professor in Michigan State University, began looking at data starting in 1917 to analyze and assess what would maximize a child's chance for future happiness. Grant you, this was still ten years before people discovered that ether wasn't real. Right? How um, do we? How do we? Sorry, sure. I, 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 I might be jumping ahead here, but sure. um, how are we measuring happiness? What's the definition there when we're talking about maximizing a child's future happiness? How, how are we? What are we pinning that to? Oh, uh, like a lack of certain stressors. Um, okay. The abundance of certain uh, opportunities. Okay. She is as Yankee as it gets. She went to right. Oberlin and she okay. teaches in Michigan. So <laughs> okay. Protestant yeah. work ethic all up and down. Right. Okay. Thank you. I, sure. I just needed to. Like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now she created vocational tests for youngsters. So there you go. Um, And she ended up classifying them based on this data that she'd gathered from those tests into four basic types. Of course. Why is it always Four. Right? Go figure. Why the fuck? Okay. Because Galen. <laughs> because of the foot pad of Italy. Like, <clears throat> the Pythagorean <throat> school. Like, because of that. Like, Son and I would say, I would say that there is something just inherent in us. I mean, the four cardinal directions, right? Yeah. There are yeah. certain numbers that pop up a lot for us. The number yeah. three and the number four. Both of those. Yeah. You know? Right. Um, so the, the four, the four types, sociable, executive, meditative, and spontaneous, which should sound familiar. Yeah. Now she's yeah. coming up with this in 1917 and, and 
again, I there's some yeah. lateral thinking going on here. I'm not yeah. saying that she didn't read uh, Steiner's stuff. Absolutely. Um, I, I don't know if she did, to be perfectly honest. Because he was kind of niche and over there, you know? Well, yeah. What what I was gonna say is I think I think this is this is a case of kind of parallel evolution. Mm-hmm. And I think if if she had been exposed to his stuff, right, my gut reaction or my gut theory is that being as Yankee as fuck as she was, mm-hmm. um, her, her she probably would have been outwardly dismissive of well that's that's all you know European mystical hokum right she's but a data I'm, person yeah what I'm doing is science exactly like, this is this is math exactly like, none of that shit get yeah. that volkish garbage out of my face yeah but here you've got two different approaches coming to the same ideas right so and at the same time she was writing all sorts of essays on child development and the like and focusing on their creativity okay. and their need to have that nourished for proper education to exist. Okay. That should, like you said, seem pretty damn familiar. Yeah. Anyway, in 1923, Carl Jung's Psychological Types was translated and published in English, and she devoured that. Now. (laughs) 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 Uh, Okay. Yeah. Uh, Everything I just said about her being a Yankee and, and completely rejecting, you know, Steiner, followed by you saying, oh, yeah, no, she ate Jung up. I'm like, yeah, that completely tracks. Like yeah. with everything I said, that's yeah. yeah, of course she did. So yeah. in in Jung's psychological types, he argued that there were again four types. <sighs> yeah. But this time they were functions and expressions of consciousness, two that took in the world and two that made sense of what was taken in. There was sensation and intuition, And there was thinking and feeling. And of course, people were introverts or extroverts. He's all about the archetypes. So this fully fits. Additionally, we have dominant and repressed functions. So it's a bit of a spectrum. Briggs thought that this was too complex for the layman to digest. And she sought to make it more sense or more more accessible to the Vulgate. But real quick, though, where, where does Carl Jung get his archetypes? Um, oh no. Oh. He looks he, he was he was a student of Freud, but right. that's not the answer. Yeah. Does he get him from, he doesn't get him from Galen. Yeah. Of course he gets him from Galen. And and yeah. what theory on how people are is similarly archetypical. Yeah. Humorism. Yeah. yeah so it's meanwhile, all, it's all humor humorism all the way down, is uh, Yeah. <laughs> It really, I, I feel like, like I feel like we're we're in that we're in that meme of the two astronauts. Yeah, always has been like right, oh, right. Shit, of course. Yeah, I I hate unified field theories, and yet here I am <laughs> pushing one. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's like no, normally it's like oh Damien, white supremacy really, but this time it's like yeah. oh humorism, huh? So <laughs> got you laughing and coughing again. Yeah, you got me again. Yeah. Um, oh my god! So, yeah, I don't, I don't. But the thing is, this isn't a unified field theory. This is no, no. Here is all of the observational data. Right. Everybody like, keeps going back to the same Wikipedia yeah, page. Everybody's like, everybody's going back to the same source. Like, right. Why can't you 
pick something else for the love of God. Montresor. Well, and I, I would say that this is like that one time that I accidentally grabbed soy sauce instead of vanilla and put it in the cookie dough. You could take oh, this. Look, you could taste ugh. soy sauce in every single cookie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. This is soy sauce in the cookies. Like you can taste the humorism Man. everywhere. Man, that's a really good analogy because that's gross. Yeah, it is. It took me like six days to eat them. <laughs> well, because I was really poor. I couldn't like just throw away those calories. So it was, it sucked. Yeah, okay. I can. All right. I... Yeah. <laughs> now, meanwhile, her daughter, uh, Isabel uh... Briggs Myers, studied political science at Swarthmore College until meeting her future husband, a Clarence Gates Myers. Isabel left college in 1918 to marry him, and it was upon meeting Clarence that Briggs grew interested specifically in personalities. He was so different than the rest of her own family that she was fascinated with her future son-in-law. Okay, so, uh, yeah, um, because it, we're, we're talking about Isabel is the daughter and Catherine yeah. Cook Briggs is the mom. Okay, so I right, say Briggs, right. but yeah, yeah, no. Briggs yeah. is Catherine. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So she's looking at her future son-in-law and going like, he is so completely different than us. What the hell? So she, she, she sought to understand his personality so that she could be a better mother-in-law to him and maintain her close relationship with her daughter unlike so many other mothers had done to that point. Okay. Now, these huh. studies took up much of her time from that meeting forward, and much of Isabel's history after marriage is largely static. She was a mom. She raised kids, the standard package. However, Isabel had a deep and abiding love of writing fiction, and in 1928, she entered into the National Detective Murder Mystery Contest with her first novel, Murder Yet to Come. It won and got published serially the next year. She also got $7,500, and that's in 1928 money. That's, um, that's okay. Yeah, it's roughly $130,000 in today's money. Oh, damn. Yeah. All right. And she got a contract for a second book. And evidently, oh, wow. the, the late 1920s was a financial paradise, the benefits from which we would never end in that decade. Um, <laughs> although... Okay. <laughs> I did read something about that 7,500 getting invested in the stock market and completely evaporating the following year, but I'm pretty sure that's a one-off. That probably didn't happen to many people at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Now, incidentally, yeah. the the runner-up was Ellery Queen for the novel The Roman Hat Mystery, which okay. forced... <laughs> really? Yeah. Which, this is why Queen sought another publisher. I thought you'd like that. <laughs> Ellery fucking Queen, second yeah. place. Okay. Yeah. All well, right. It's, it's like the 1979 uh uh San Francisco comedy competition. Do you know who won first place? No. Nobody does because the second place Robin was Williams. Robin Williams. Yeah. Yeah. So now yeah. Briggs Christmas. tried to interest Myers. So mom tried to interest daughter in type theory which I still see as largely the same thing as temperament ideology based out of the humors, but Myers wasn't too interested during that time. However, when World War II broke out, she shifted and Briggs and Myers began collaborating as mother and daughter. And this may have been due to the fact that Myers had read an article about getting the right kinds of people into the right kinds of jobs to maximize the U.S.'s home front contributions to the effort to defeat fascism. 
Specifically, this was aimed at getting more women properly placed in the workplace. Interesting. Mm -hmm. And this kind of makes sense. If you're the kind of person who doesn't mind loud noises, an assembly line's not a bad place for you. But if you're kind of nervous and twitchy, that's the worst place for you. But we could get you a job in the steno pool. And you could still contribute, you know, shit like that. Like personality okay. typing yeah. makes sense when you're trying to maximize a totalitarian democratic regime. And it was a totalitarian regime. We we put every it was total war. We put yeah. all our effort toward that, right? And I mean, yeah. fuck, rationing was there. They told industries what to make and what not to make. It was totalitarian. That being said, it was to to fight worse stuff. But yeah. personality typing. Of that type to to help get the machines running right is yeah I don't see it as a particularly bad goal yeah by the way Briggs had a degree in agriculture and Myers had studied political science before leaving school to get married okay okay so in 1945 they ran the first tests of personality type that they developed on medical students at George Washington School of Medicine they had 5,500 students tested and the Two of them spent years researching and trying to deduce these surveys uh, to deduce to deduce from these surveys that if there were any patterns to who would drop out of medical school. Now, keep in mind, at that time, they didn't know how long the war would would go. Right. There was still the, the specter of the Japanese theater taking until 47, probably maybe 48. Right, right, right. Now, it bears mentioning that this industrial approach to behavior and personality is still leagues better as an approach than the prior model of just expecting people to simply handle the abuses of the system or leave. Yeah. These two surveyors were specifically trying to find what would include more people and enable them to work better at the jobs that they were best suited for. And over the next 20 years, from 45 to about 65, the two of them collaborated to hone and sharpen and clarify and make useful what we would come to know as the Myers-Briggs type indicator, the MBTI, or what we colloquially refer to as the Myers-Briggs personality test. Yes. The first publication with it named as the MBTI came out in 1956, when Henry Chauncey, the founder of the Educational Testing Service, started using it for his private nonprofit assessment firm. God, do I have a problem with stuff like this? Um, yeah. And he and they collaborated to create the first manual for the MBTI in 1962. And this led to Donald McKinnon of UC Berkeley and one of the foremost experts on the psychology of creativity at the time and other big wigs through the 60s and 70s, taking it and running with it further. Okay, yeah. Just so that we're both clear, this is the one that has ENTJ, ENFP, INFS, et cetera, et cetera, right? Or, yeah, ESFJ. Right. Yeah. Um. So, by the 1970s, the MBTI is essentially canon, and plenty of institutions used or altered or popularized it. And after Briggs died, Myers continued the work, eventually writing the book, Gifts Differing, with her son, Peter, after she was okay. diagnosed with terminal cancer. This really? is actually considered the definitive work on the MBTI, and she died shortly after its publication. Now, leading up to her death, reportedly, Myers spoke to people of little beyond typing and its importance. And not only was it something that she thought was useful for vocation and job placement, but at this point, she thought it should expand into couples therapy, child rearing, and so on. 
Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it did. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> yeah. And at its core, it has four things. And okay. It had become such a way of life for her that Myers credited her own happy marriage to her awareness of personality types. Now, is there something to this? Perhaps, yes. Mm. Um, I've certainly seen people go into couples counseling or couples pre-counseling. Like, uh, apparently, you religious types will do this often. Is you'll meet with the <laughs> minister and, and yeah. do that, and they would they would talk about communication styles or. Uh, personality types and things like that and it's just like hey you know when when so and so gets upset that you don't put the cups lip side down the way they're going to communicate is based on this and here's how you make a marriage work right yeah okay now I I just I I have to interject here sure that there is so much to say about um, couples counseling Mm -hmm. and the um, uh, evangelical movement, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> like in the relationship between the two, mm-hmm. uh, and and um, the the idea uh, put forward by by so many people in evangelical circles that well, you know, marriage is hard, and you really got to work, and like my first marriage. <laughs> Because it's a patriarchy, and one of you <laughs> might have trouble with that. Yeah, well, one, but I mean, that's know, where it's coming from from the evangelical part. Oh, They're well, just not yeah, saying that part out loud. Yeah, well, it, you know, and and the thing is, um, my first marriage was was a lot of work. My second marriage, um, I actually found somebody. I was more mature. I had had more life experience. She was more mature. She had had more life experience. And, and so we knew what we wanted and we communicated like grownups and, and it's not nearly that much work anymore. I dare say that both are hard work. It's just that this marriage is the beneficiary of you having done the hard work of growing up. Yes. There you go. Yeah. Um, and, and so much of the, so much of the, the, uh, cultural zitgeist within within that subculture of well you know this is just going to be hard is well because you're pressuring people to get married when they haven't actually fucking dated yeah or they haven't figured themselves out like you know what it is is i want someone to complete me instead of i want a complete person it's i want someone to grow with instead of i want to grow yeah alongside this person like there are differences there yeah yeah yeah. So anyway, sorry. Yeah. I no, it's fine. Walked again. She, but yeah. she actually, uh, Myers, um, said that she was an INFP and her husband was an ISTJ. Um, and that made it easier to understand and appreciate him knowing that, um, along with the use of the MBTI. Okay. Um, I kind of, I'm okay with this ultimately because it would be akin to, you got the, you know, the Emily Post's Kama Sutra and you figured some things out. <laughs> like, yeah, cool. Yeah, like, I, I I think there there is there is validity to, well, you know, my husband and I both learned about what, you know, how how we view ourselves and what our worldview is, mm-hmm. you know, and and what lights us up and what doesn't light us up and, and understanding that 
opens you up to being able to communicate in a more meaningful way. Mm -hmm. I think the um, semi-mystical value attached to, well, my type is this and his type is that is like, no. Well, and what's important is that, you know, you, you understand and value each other based mm -hmm. on what you know about each other. And you've put in the effort to like, listen to that. Right. I mean, I would say that what she's doing is humorism. It's just with a scientific, you know, foundation instead or scientific skinning. Um, it's, it's, it's humorism with a lot of extra steps. Yeah. I, well, and, and again, I, I think there's something in the water that's making people think along these lines. There's something that's deeply yeah. attractive well, yeah. about this stuff. She gave, she did the version for uh, academic liberals. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. So she remained married to her husband, uh, by all accounts, quite happily until her death in 1980. Okay. Uh, the copyright to the test was then specifically passed on to her son, Peter. Now, oh, all right. Yeah. Scientifically, it's been deemed virtually devoid of substance and for a long while now. So, yeah, for for a number of years now, doesn't mean that it hasn't made him lots of money. It's considered pseudoscience. (laughs) Yeah, it's considered pseudoscience, both due to its methodology and to its conclusions. Organizational psychologist Adam Grant called it the, quote, fad that won't die. Uh, He did that. He said that in 2013. Organizational psychologist Robert Hogan said, quote, most personality psychologists regard the MBTI as little more than an elaborate Chinese fortune cookie. Okay, that's cutting. Yeah. Barbara Ehrenreich. That's, that's oh, author ooh, Barbara Ehrenreich right. uh, pointed out its flaws in her famous book, Nickel and Dime. Now, okay. in fairness, Briggs and Myers both wrote several disclaimers and warnings at the outside outset of it, once stating that the MBTI needed to be considered, quote, a framework for understanding individual differences and a dynamic model of individual development and not something to use to screen out applicants. So in fairness yeah, okay. to them, they said, don't use this this way. And then everybody went and used it that way. Uh, oh, yeah. Now, well, yeah, they made they they made money hand over fist doing that. And what is it that we always say about yeah. authorial intent? Um, yeah, well, yeah. So, yes. Given how much stock both Myers and Briggs put into the importance and the increasingly broad application of this test specifically advocated by Myers in seventies. I wonder if some mm-hmm. of that wasn't a professional cover your ass kind of move too. Oh, I'm sure it was. Yeah, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. Now, of course, David Kiersey uh, developed his own sorter in 1956 after encountering the MBTI, and he called it the Kiersey Temperament Sorter. Right. So again, it's literally yeah. temperament meets Myers-Briggs. He was a personality psychology expert and a professor at CSU Fullerton. He wrote two volumes titled Please Understand Me, in which he followed the four temperaments. Oh, my God literally linking them back to Hippocrates and Plato and blending them with the MTBI's 16 types to create four categories with subcategories. So the four categories, the artisan, Uh, the idealist, the rational, and the guardian. Mm -hmm. Okay. Artisans who were directive were called operators. 
artisans who were informative were called entertainers. Idealists who were okay. directive were called mentors. Idealists who were informative were called advocates. Rationals right. who were directive were called coordinators. Rationals who were informative were called engineers. And finally, guardians who were directive were called administrators. Guardians who were informative were called conservators. Now, wow. Yeah. It, Kiersey would later then further develop the ideas and, and came up with the, quote, four differing roles that people play in face-to-face -face interaction with one another, end quote. Uh, he said this in, okay. his, in his book, Brains and Careers in 2008. Um, initiators, contenders, accommodators, and collaborators. So again, four. And of course, each of those could be subdivided as well in a way that ties back to all the Myers-Briggs terminologies, 16 basic types again. And all of this stuff is pseudoscience and all of it is intuitively very fulfilling to those of us who love patterns and love to see where we are in relation to others. Yeah. Now, this shit is a whole section of borders, or at least it was. Now it's a whole section of what is now Mendocino Farms in Sacramento. I don't know. Um, I... I, I now that borders is gone i i don't know yeah you would but anyway there was a lot of books on the subject of dividing ourselves into helotypes in the early 2000s self-help for an unstable yeah. job market uh, for an unsteady dating pool for finding the right kind of therapist even um and it's been going on since well before you and i were children mm. and i want to leave it there because in the next episode, I'm going to talk about Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. And we will finally get okay. to the subject of this podcast, the Teenage Mutant. All right. Adventures. So. So uh, what have you gleaned? Oh, um, what have I gleaned that Jung had something right when he talked about archetypes sure because on some kind of subconscious level these kinds of ideas are something we can't get away from mm. um i i think there's an awful lot of other stuff about it that was you know absolute complete woo woo um but there's there's something there the other thing is so much of this um so much of this is built on an idea of nature over nurture. Yeah. There there is so much of this that is well you know this kid has this temperament. Right. And you know your personality type is this thing. And you know you are an uh, INTP, you are an INFJ, right, or an ESFJ or whatever, and you know just just like, um, you know astrology, which was a huge big deal in the seventies, uh, amongst boomers, mm -hmm. uh, this this idea that well you know that's that's such a Gemini thing for you to say, right, um, there there is this deep seated. Uh, nature versus nurture thing going on there that it's like, well, these are just qualities that are just inborn. And, mm -hmm. you know, there is some level on which we, we have 
parts of our personality or parts of our temperament that like have just been there and we don't know why, but then, you know, uh, part of, part of what I thought when you were, when you were talking about, uh, the Waldorf model in Austria, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, building a community to make that work, you know, there is so much that a kid brings into the classroom that the teacher has no control over like at all. And that's all the stuff that's going on outside the classroom at home. Right. And the culture that the parents are inculcating in their child. And just like, there is so much nurture involved in all of this. And like the Waldorf school was, was trying to nurture things in a certain way, but they came at it from this point of, well, this kid is coming to us with this, inborn temperament yeah this inflexible and it's like that yeah Yeah. it's like that's where you dropped the baton is like let's let's talk about the societal issues that are going on there let's let's talk about the attitude that the family has toward education let's talk about like all of it how are the parents disciplining the child at home like what you know there there are so many factors that are involved in all this well, and it's interesting too because, like, they were looking to address the structural problems with prior education yeah. models, and yet they still fell into almost the same exact trap. Yeah, you know, a lot of the same kind of trap. It's like, yeah, it's like telling the Jedi Order, like, you guys are too reliant on the Force, and they're like, okay, how can we use the Force to fix that? And you're like, God damn it! Yeah, like <laughs> that's okay, not no, it. Stop. Yeah, back up. Yeah, it's it's like there there are certain things that are just being taken so much for granted that you know you can't you can't get away from them. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah. Um and it's just yeah, it's 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 inescapable uh because nobody, because again, as you've pointed out a number of times, everybody's begging the question on so many levels. Yeah. Well, and and to the point where that that begging of the question has become archetypical. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's part of the archetype. Yeah, yeah. So it's just, and again, it's weird. I, I, again, I, I think it's that whole intuition is easy to satisfy, so you stop looking after that. Because this is good enough to explain yeah. what's going on. Like, we all know yeah. someone who I could, like, I describe melancholic. We all know someone like that. You know, we, we all know mm-hmm. someone who's choleric. We all know someone who's sanguine. We all know someone who's phlegmatic. Like, honestly, I've just described two out of, like, the five D&D groups that I've ever played with. Like, <laughs> everybody fits into yeah. that, you know? I remember even yeah. talking about uh, the, it wasn't even a D&D group. It was a Star Wars group. I remember talking about a Star Wars group that I played with and I I said, "Oh, we are the elements." Yeah. One friend his he he was absolutely air, one friend was absolutely water, one was absolutely fire, and then there was me, absolutely earth. And then yeah. I found another group and it was basically the same thing. You know, and again, mm-hmm. you know, if you have an explanation that works, you stop looking after that, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. And, and the other thing is, um, when you, all all of this, 
all of these people talking about temperament and all of these people talking about, you know, you know, humoristic, you know, types, Mm -hmm. who you are at any given moment is affected by who you're around. Yeah. So like between you and me, for Mm -hmm. example, um, I'm generally the choleric one. Right. More frequently, right? Yeah. When I'm around other friends, I'm the sanguine one. You yeah. know, in other circumstances, some somebody else is, you know, takes over the choleric one. I will admit I'm almost never the phlegmatic one. Like, you know, right. that's that's just not not a role I'm 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 good at playing. Sure. But like in a given group, who we are changes from moment to moment. Like we code switch. But we also are, are going based on a codified, uh, limit right there too. Yeah. You, you even said someone else takes over that though. That doesn't have to be taken over, but we think about it in those terms. We absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's the, yeah, that's, that's the paradigm, Mm -hmm. the, the lens that we're, that we're, that we're viewing it through, but you know, if an outside observer looking at my behavior in other circumstances is going to see a, a different facet or different sides of my personality being more, uh, more outward. Yeah. Uh, or, or, or more, more, uh, prominently expressed maybe, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh, in different circumstances, you know, sure. when I'm, when I'm at home with my wife, right. When my parents come to visit, like there's, you know, the, the relationship that I have with them means that certain patterns of behavior come out and, you know, I'm still the same person, but the expression of my personality is different, Yeah, you know, and, and by saying, well, you know, this kid has this temperament, it's like, well, (laughs) there's so many parts of the picture that you, that you discard or, or wind up softening the focus on right when you when you just you know apply the cookie cutter yeah well and even if you say like oh well we need to bring out these other aspects of their personality and you allow for the fact that people aren't just single stories um you're still sticking to those four paradigms yeah you know so yeah all right you got a book you want to recommend uh yeah i do i do um, I want to recommend uh, Tales from the Dying Earth by Jack Vance. Um, I mentioned him when I was talking about the fantasy of the 1950s in my episode on uh, Michael Moorcock and uh, Stormbringer and or Elric of Melnibane, Stormbringer being, you know, the title. But um, Jack Vance is a very important figure in fantasy, uh, especially if you're a D&D fan. When you read Tales from the Dying Earth, you will find all of the places where Gary fucking Gygax, like, literally stole shit word for word. Nice. Uh, <laughs> uh, the the magic system in uh, old D&D, actually up through modern D&D, uh, and in Pathfinder oh, and, yeah, and yeah. all of those, all, all of those uh, genera mm-hmm. uh, of, of games it's all lifted straight out of Jack Vance. It's referred to, in fact, as a Vancean magic system. Right. Uh, so uh, it, it winds up 
in some ways it almost reads like, well, this guy's just writing about, you know, his really high level D and D characters. And you're like, no, no high level D &D characters work (laughs) that way because of Jack Vance. Right. Uh, so yeah, um, it is really entertaining. His world building is wonderfully weird. His language is awesome. Uh, very evocative very moody so yeah i'm i'm very strongly recommending that uh mostly for the fun of it uh how about you i'm gonna recommend a a play by ben johnson uh called every man in his humor uh i believe it's from the 1500s like yes it is um, and i attributed it to shakespeare in an earlier episode oh that's right yeah 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 um yeah it was ben johnson all right Uh, but you know, a contemporary, uh, but it's yeah. actually part of the comedy of humors. So, uh, it, the English yes. commedia dell'arte in some ways, um, in, in, yeah, because you have, wrong. yeah, the stock characters and, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But, yeah. uh, if you want a way to, to get a more entertaining and accessible read on it without having to read the MBTI, I recommend that play. <laughs> so. Cool. Uh, do you want to be found? Uh, not at the moment, no. Cool. I do not. However, we collectively can be found uh, on our website at wubbawubbawubba.geekhistorytime.com. Uh, also, uh, we can be found on uh, Spotify and the Apple Podcast app. Um, and obviously, you found us somewhere. So wherever it is that you did, please take a moment to give us uh, the five-star review that you know Damien has earned with his exhaustive and no doubt painful research. (laughs) And uh, also uh, be sure to hit the subscribe button. And if you're, if you're new to our podcast, uh, welcome aboard. And I don't know why you're starting here uh, in the middle of, of a a many part series, but feel free to go back uh, through our archives and uh, find whatever subjects are, catch catch your fancy and uh there's there's quite the uh quite the selection to to look through uh just so people know uh march 1st and april 5th you can find me uh going back to capital punishment at the comedy spot in sacramento uh please nice. check your local listings uh it's it's going to be quite a bit of fun we we made you miss us this long so mark your calendar for March 1st and April 5th. So nice for a geek history of time. I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, keep rolling twenties. <laughs>